So Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Sama Sambodasa So welcome everyone. Can you all hear me okay? Good. No? Is it okay? Can you hear me all back there? Okay, good. So, congratulations, completing the first day of practice. Know that uh, we're working hard, and as Mary Grace said earlier, sometimes it feels like we're these first few days can feel like we're in the swamp. And even though we, uh, perhaps uh, this could be rated as a four or five star retreat center, it's still different than our regular lifestyle for many of us. And we are adjusting. Hopefully the spirit behind this is in this adjustment that everything that comes up within us is also part of our practice. Whether you're in a four or five star or a one star, when I spent some time in Burma, too hot, food too oily, didn't understand the language, my mind was always very quick to find something that was wrong, wanting it to be different. And so it really doesn't matter, because even in the four or five star, maybe you've gone on a four or five star hotel, it's different than home. And so the spirit behind this practice is to work with what arises as part of practice. And so I want to uh, just re uh, to encourage you to consider that this is all practice not just sitting on the cushion here but in the dining hall in the room and all the different places that we're going here in this retreat is part of our practice Jack Cornfield tells of a story of doing some very intensive med- meditation practice in his early years as a monk. And I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was like seeing all these lights and colors and expansiveness and vastness. And uh, he went back to his teacher, Achan Shah, who uh, he was telling him all about this. And Achan Shah said, oh, just another thing to be attached to. And so we're working with our practice and being mindful of what we're clinging to or what we're having aversion from. This is normal. And actually, in the Buddhist text, it's so normal and predictable, the sense of attachments and challenges, difficulties that arise in practice that it's talked about is actually even housed in the last foundation of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the dharmas. And it begins off with working with some of the challenges and the 
hindrances, difficulties that arise in practice. I love that it's just so plainly put on the map. If you're going to sit, things are going to come up. And so we, in these first few days, they may come up very vividly. We get the experience of the classic five, but there's many more than these five. But often boil down to these five in the sense of wanting something to feel good. Have we not been sitting here today wishing perhaps the air conditioner was on? Or wanting something? Maybe a different curry for lunch? Or who knows? So we might have been visited by the wanting. And conversely, we may have been visited by the not wanting. I don't want it to be like this. Of course, at times we might be experiencing restlessness. Sometimes we consider that to be like a pacing tiger. Barely sit inside our own skin. This is unharnessed energy, wild energy. Sometimes we get visited with sloth and torpor, sleepiness. And sometimes we're sitting with doubt. I don't know, what am I even doing here? Yeah. So this arises. What am I even doing here? Tired. I don't want it to be like this. I want it to be different. So we understand, and it's very incredibly courageous and vulnerable for us to be willing to be and sit with ourselves. And I really want to just honor that with every person here, the amount of courage and vulnerability and honesty that it takes to sit with ourselves. At times it's not a pretty picture. And I'm trust there's moments in the retreats where you feel like it's going so well, like I want to do this forever, and there'll be equally maybe even just five minutes from then in that same sitting. It's like, I don't know if I can stand another minute of this stuff. So the weather systems are blowing in and blowing out, sometimes with uh, great rapidity and other times perhaps very slowly. And I just want to name this, that this is some things that arise while we practice. Sometimes there's a beautiful simile of the clear lake when it's obstructed. And so when we're in a wanting mind, the lake looks like it has red dye in the water. You can't see clearly through it. And if we're feeling a lot of anger and aversion, it's like boiling waters. Restlessness, pacing tiger, the waters are very choppy. If we're tired, sleepy, sloth, torpor, it's like a thick layer of algae over the lake. And with doubt, yeah, those muddy waters. During this retreat, we will speak a lot about how to work with these challenges. And for now, I just want to be able to name them out loud. Is this familiar? Huh? Yeah. Some nods here? Yeah. Yeah. For now, I just want to have us work with these as practice, to notice it, to acknowledge it. When we become aware of it, we can begin to work with it. There's a beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl, uses a lot in our mindfulness-based stress reduction work, but he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies 
my freedom. Sometimes we don't see that space. That space, of course, is mindfulness. And if we're not aware, we may be just consumed in the story of our wanting mind, our not wanting mind, our restlessness, our sleepiness, our doubt. But once we become aware, we oh, there's doubt. Oh, here's wanting mind. Oh, here's aversion. Oh, here's restlessness. Here's tiredness. In that moment of awareness, we can begin to engage with it. So for now, just bringing this awareness in is so important. And may it be held with this practice of compassion. Pema Trojan speaks about um, that there's two ways to train a dog. And if we train a dog by beating it, we'll end up with an obedient but a very inflexible and rather terrified dog. The dog may obey when we say stay, come, roll over, and sit up, but it will also be neurotic and confused. By contrast, training with kindness results in someone who's flexible and confident and who doesn't become upset when situations are unpredictable and insecure. We just got a puppy, so I can really relate to this reading. By contrast, training with kindness results in someone who's flexible and confident and doesn't become upset when situations are unpredictable and insecure. I love this notion of training with kindness. I really want to just uh, remind all of us, including myself, of that. Training with kindness, with compassion, because I think as we grow in our mindfulness, there's times where we begin to recognize that our own worst adversary is our own mind. It's very powerful in the Dhammapada, one of the suttas of the Buddha, says that the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. This is a very powerful statement. This is why so much emphasis is played upon mindfulness. Mindfulness is a path to awaken. Bhante Gunaratana is a Buddhist monk. He actually wrote a beautiful book called Mindfulness in Plain English, such a down-to-earth book. But he talks about meditation. To be a meditator, he says, it takes a lot of gumption. I love that word, gumption. And that, that gumption he's talking about is the ability to sit with ourselves rather than watching television. And so it does take a certain gumption for us to be here, to be present with ourselves. Last night, in Mary Grace's uh, opening talk to us all, she mentioned about the four heavenly messengers. And perhaps that's what really brings us here. These heavenly messages that Siddhartha Gautama, this prince that 
realized through these messengers that there's aging and illness and death and that there's this monk or a path that leads to peace. So perhaps we have been visited by our own heavenly messengers with the physical challenges we may be experiencing in our lives as well as the mental and emotional. And it was because I'm always struck with the story of Siddhartha Gautama and his quest to awaken and eventually to become a Buddha. It was these very issues of realizing that he nor anyone else could not escape from aging and illness and death, separation. It catapulted him into a sense of urgency for practice. In Pali, the language of the early Buddhists, there's a beautiful word, it's called samvega, and it means literally, when you have the understanding that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is the meaning of life. And Siddhartha Gautama had that big time. And perhaps why we're sitting here in this retreat is that we also have this too. Powerful opportunity to sit with ourselves. can say that death is a very powerful trump card. It offers us the understanding of the fragility of this life and its preciousness. And it is a sharp card that cuts through our denial of, of life and death. Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master, once said, if you didn't die, though, you'd have a really big problem. So, you know, you can imagine five to 10,000 years having all the pizza and sex and whatever else you like. But after a while, it could get old. And so this death, you know, we live long enough, maybe 100 years, but it certainly feels short enough. I remember once talking with my teacher, Lyndon Seto, on his 80th birthday, and I said, Seto, how fast has 80 years been? And he looked at me and smiled and went like this. <laughs> of course, and however, whatever age you are, I mean, no doubt we've done a lot, but it also feels fast. At least it does for me. So here we are on retreat, working within ourselves, with our lives. And it begins with our body. When the Buddha taught about awakening, he pointed to the four foundations of mindfulness. The first foundation is the mindfulness of the body. Second foundation is the feeling tones of experience. The third is of the mind. The fourth is of the dharmas. And during this retreat will be um, unpacking those and practicing with those. And we'll also discover that within each of these foundations, the others will also arise. They are interrelated and interconnected. But the Buddha was very specific in the foundations to begin with the body practices. And so the spirit of uh, tomorrow, we're going to begin the 32 parts of the body meditation 
I want to offer you some introductions to this practice that we'll be working with. In the Samyuja Nikaya, one of the teachings of the discourses within the Buddha, with the Buddha, he says this, he says, I do not teach that the cessation of the world of suffering could be done without the attainment of Nibbana. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, its origin, its cessation, and the path leading to Nibbana within this fathom-long body. So we're going to begin with um, some body practices. And of course, we've already begun with the mindfulness of breathing, the mindfulness of walking, introducing a little bit about the mindfulness of eating, and we'll be elaborating more and more, bringing the practices of mindfulness into the body. So I also, in the body section, the foundation of mindfulness, there's six distinct practices. And the first three are very much practiced here in the West. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of bodily postures, the mindfulness of day-to-day activities. The last three are not practiced that often, though they are very important, so important that the Buddha Uh, put them into the foundations of the body. And that is the 32 parts of the body meditation and the mindfulness of the elements. The elements in particular we'll be working with in this retreat, solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. And we find that a way of teaching the 32 parts of the body is interrelated to the element practice. Then the last practice is a very powerful practice on the mindfulness of death of nine contemplations of a dead body from the day of its death until it decomposes into dust. One might ask, why would that be included? (laughs) Pretty graphic practice, very powerful practice, but perhaps uh, there's an old Hindu proverb that says, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. So those of us that live in that school, and I sometimes feel like I've lived in that school, that maybe it actually would take me to to watch a body die and turn to dust to finally really get that death does happen. So the mindfulness of death is a very powerful practice, and we have to remember that it was this samweka that the Buddha had, this awakening of the in escapability of aging, illness, and death that catapulted him into practice. And so it's very fitting, of course, that the mindfulness of death is found within the body. And of course, death is as natural as part of life as, as, as birth and living. Tonight, we'll just focus on this one body practice, the 32 parts. So this I want to elaborate upon. I was introduced to the 32 parts of the body by my teacher, Venerable Tangpulu Siado of Burma, who was a forest monk. I had the wonderful opportunity of ordaining temporarily with him in central Burma 
and then disrobing and coming back to the United States where I and a group of people in the Cerro, we all started a monastery in Boulder Creek, California. And I lived there for eight and a half years doing a lot of practice and caring for the monks, tending to them. So in 1980, I was introduced by the Cerro to the 32 parts of the body meditation. I was just a young, youngling then, my early 20s, and I didn't know at the time that Tunkulu Cerro was, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but um, very few people practiced the 32 parts of the body, even in Asia. In the United States, it was very foreign, and Tampulu Cerro, being a forest monk and was part of this forest tradition, he was a, a, a practitioner for many years of the 32 parts of the body. And so he introduced this to me and other students in 1980. And uh, it's a very unique practice. I'll explain in a little bit how it is practiced, and it's very unique. But I'll just to say that I stayed with this practice on and off. I, after I left the monastery, I um, found out about the work of John Kabat-Zinn doing mindfulness-based stress reduction in medical centers, and I was very interested in working in this area as far as bringing mindfulness into mainstream America and John Kabat-Zinn's created a wonderful program, and one of the very first practices that he taught was called the body scan meditation, which is a very methodical practice beginning with your left foot and working your way up the body part by part. And, uh, and so this felt like a distant relative to the body scan. And I have taught many, many body scans through the years, teaching MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, but eyes in the background was this 32 parts of the body practice, and I would chant it sometimes and work with it on and off. Well, this went on. It's funny to say, but when you live long enough, you can say it. Um, I, I, I dabbled with the 32 parts of the body for 26 years. And eventually, after 26 years, I realized, wow, this is really a powerful practice. <laughs> and... It's kind of like um, I have this wonderful picture. I, I'm going to have to get this blown up sometime. But it's a, it's, a, it's a Gary Larson cartoon, The Far Side. And it's a very simple picture. There's three cows, and they're in a pasture, and they're eating grass. This is what cows do. They eat grass in pastures day in and day out. Except one day, this one cow has an epiphany. And the cow says, hey, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. We've been eating grass all these years. We've been eating grass. Now, in the same way, I think maybe after 26 years being out in the pasture myself, wait a minute, even doing the body scan, I didn't quite get it. But wait a minute, we have a body. We have a body we have a body. In The Dubliners by James Joyce, there's a character in the book, his name was uh, Mr. Duffy. And it was said of him, and we use this quote often in MBSR, 
that Mr. Duffy said that he happened to live a short distance away from his body. And it's kind of a very funny statement, but I think for many years I had also been living a short distance away from my body, except when I got sick. And so the 32 parts of the body, I realized after so many years that this is an incredibly powerful practice and I want to get into this more and I want to begin to, to share it with others. And so about five years ago, I began to offer 32 parts of the body classes in Vipassana Santa Cruz. Would anyone even come? <laughs> so on a Friday morning... There's a few different ways of practicing this meditation. We're doing it in the week format. I've done day-longs with it, five-day residential retreats with it. And one of the traditional ways of doing it, which I offered in Santa Cruz, and this is why I wondered whether anyone would come, is that it goes for 33 weeks, eight months. (laughs) People showed up. About half completed it. It's, it's a long journey. Well, year one went by. Okay, I'll try it again in year two. Will anyone come? People came. So I'm now in my fifth year, and there's about 25 people in this class. We'll see what happens. My teacher, Venerable Tungpilu Seto, this is what he had to say about the 32 parts of the body practice. This meditation is one of the most eminent among all the foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthanas. The meditation on the body is unlike any other kind of meditation. It is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. There's a quote from Saraha that says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. The most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. Mary Oliver, the wonderful poet, has a beautiful twist when she has a poem called The Body, and she says, Bless the fingers, for they are darting as fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they are softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they are cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the, they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet, for their knuckles and their modesty. Bless the spine, for it is the whole story. So you've been hearing about these parts, and you might be wondering, what are they? So the parts are divided into 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. And they're separated into groups of 
four groups of five solid parts and two groups of six liquid parts. And so here's the parts. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. Flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. Heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs. Large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain. Very interesting arrangement right there. Bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. Tears, grease, saliva. Mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. I'm looking at all your responses. Huh? <laughs> what? So we'll be dabbling into these parts and many more in these days to come. In the text, there's mention of the benefits of working with this practice and perhaps the most important one is that it helps to eradicate the erroneous view of self, of I, me, and my, of this conditioned narrative based self. Also speaks about being, as you work with this practice, you can conquer boredom and delight, fear and dread. You can bear the cold and heat better. One attains jhana, or deep absorption, concentration. One attains nibbana, liberation. And there's also sources of um, this practice being used for healing. I had a good friend of mine, Barbara Roberts, who's now been passed away for quite some time. But when she came to the monastery, she was um, she had uh, advanced lung cancer with a terminal prognosis of under one year. And she began practicing with the monks, and they uh, taught her the 32 parts of the body. And she felt that this practice helped her to... Um, live much longer than her initial prognosis. As a matter of fact, every year on the anniversary of, of uh, when she was told that she had one year left to live, she would send a postcard to her oncologist with just two words, still here. And that lasted for about six years until she eventually had a reoccurrence and did pass away. But I'll also have to say that even in her passing away, there was profound healing in how that she met her death, I believe that she died healed. And here's a very beautiful, very powerful poem that Barbara wrote about her death just uh, a few months before she died. It says, Of Life and Death, by Barbara Roberts, It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonder of birth. At Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts.
sometimes in our practices with the 32 parts of the body, people just experience a way of relating to their body with much more compassion. I remember once in a class, some woman blurting out, I just love my large intestines. <laughs> Another woman described when she was um, in class and had a profound uh, um, sweating for menopause. And, and one of the you know, parts that we work with is sweat. <laughs> and so we were actually working on sweat as she was perspiring and she was on she's just reporting that it was so powerful to actually sit with the sweat to look at the aversion to embrace it rather than fighting it and developing a whole other way of being with the hot flash and much more way that we begin to relate to our body with a sense of of compassion and understanding a certain part of this practice, though, that helps us to begin to break some of the spell of the enchantment of the body. I think it's no coincidence that the Buddha began with the parts of the body that we can see. Head here, body here, nails as fingernails and toenails, uh, teeth and skin. These are the parts that the cosmetic industry has created a multi-billion dollar um, industry. How much have we fussed on our head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin? How much suffering have we experienced when we've looked into the mirror and saw what we saw? There's, this is a very interesting practice because it can be practiced in a couple of ways. One way of practicing is to develop deep concentration, absorption, and jhana. And another way is to practice deep insight into the nature of the body as it interrelates, as these body parts begin to break down into their elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. The way that I am oriented towards teaching this and most definitely practicing it is insight. I have too much suffering in my life to dabble around. I want to get deeper understanding. So I, this is the way that we teach this is from an insight perspective. And there's also two different ways of practicing. Another grouping of two different ways of practicing. And one of the reasons that I feel that the 32 parts of the body has not been that much practiced in the West is that one of the practices that's become popular, well, is written about a lot in the text, is, and you may have um, seen some of this, or if you begin to decide to Google 32 parts of the body, you'll come across it, is that there's a way of teaching this that talks about the body in a very strong way, in a very negative way, the loathsome, repulsive disgusting elements of, of the body parts. I don't think that would turn much of us on. And we have to understand that um, this was also a monastic practice and perhaps these younger monks were feeling um, kind of frisky 
And so using practices to help curb the sense of desire were very helpful. And so they kind of overlaid the 32 parts of, of working with it from a lens of the repulsive. And they use those words. So I, I don't want to be shy about it or not acknowledge that that's there. You'll find that in the text. But also equally what you will find in the text of presenting the 32 parts in a much more neutral fashion as it relates to insight into the elements, into the way things are. And I find that this is a much more skillful means approach to working with the 32 parts of the body. As a matter of fact, there's even in the suttas a story of a group of monks that got so repulsed, they all took their lives. When the Buddha heard about this, it's like, oh. So, you know, this body, on the other hand, is the vehicle that we live inside of. This, this is the vehicle. This is what we use in our pathway to greater freedom and greater understanding. So the way that I like to teach the 32 parts of the body is to present the body parts in a very neutral, matter-of-fact way. It's up to our own interpretation of what it evokes inside you, physically in your body, mentally and emotionally, and to acknowledge what's present. So we present it in a very neutral and very matter-of-fact way. Some people even develop a very much more, you know, I love how this one woman would say, I love my large intestines, in the sense that it works and it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And, but again, this practice will help us to work with um, breaking some of the spell of enchantment that our cosmetic industry has really glorified on how we think that our bodies should look and of course the the amount of suffering and pain that that has generated as it interrelates to the elements we begin to see that the body is just a concept it's made of solids liquids motion and temperature we can even experience this right now just for a moment as you maybe pause for a moment and breathe in and breathe out. And as you breathe in through the nostrils in particular, just feeling that touching contact sensation, that is the element of solidity. And as we breathe in and out, we might feel some of the wetness in the nostrils, that is the element of liquidity. And with the motion, the breath coming in, the breath coming out, the element of motion, the air element. Considering the last element of temperature, as you breathe in, the air may feel a little bit cooler. As we breathe out, the air a little bit warmer. So this practice of the 32 parts of the body can begin to help us to understand, comprehend this concept of the body, but in its original composition, solids, liquids, motion, temperature.
way to work with this practice, and we will you know, begin tomorrow with it, is that there is a very unique way of working with it where we will recite the parts verbally, and that will help set up the condition for us to be able to comprehend it mentally. And then we begin to penetrate into each part, knowing the color, the shape, the direction, the location, what it is bordered by, as well as, of course, us beginning to understand uh, its, uh, what, you know, what this, the function of this part, and so forth. So we can begin to hone in into our practice. And so, as we go through each part, we're going to be, we'll be chanting it at first out loud, and then silently, and then beginning to penetrate into the color, the shape, the location, and will be a guided practice. Why they are arranged like this, there is no explanations as far as I've been able to find in any of the literature, canonical literature on the arrangement, but it does make sense to me in the sense that, you know, head, hair, body, hair, nails, she skin are the parts that we see. And then it begins to go inside to the body, into the muscles, the connective tissue, the bones, the bone marrow, then the kidneys. And at first I go, well, how, what's the relationship between the bone marrow and the kidneys? And one of my students had a wonderful insight. Oh, yeah, well, of course. The bone marrow is part of our blood formation, and the kidneys is what's purifying the blood. Every day, uh, 400 gallons of blood flow through the kidneys, and it filters out the, the blood into the urine and takes out the toxic waste of the body. Coming back to this first section of the body, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, another student of mine decided she was a, a chief financial officer for some corporations, and so she was very skilled with Excel sheets. And she put together an Excel sheet for me <laughs> of her first 67 years and how much she actually has spent on herself on head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. So I have a detailed analysis here. And um, essentially, she figures that she spent about $180,691. And she's got it divided down into the ages between 0 and 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, all the way up to 60 to 70. So in the ages of 20 to 30, she spent 4800 bucks on head hair, 250 on body hair, 2500 on nails, $275 on teeth, and skin for facials was about 3200 bucks. So she's got it separated in categories of 10. Then, of course, there's all the different types of uh, things you need. For the head hair, you need shampoo, conditioners, curly irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil. Then you get into teeth, toothpaste, dental floths, toothbrushes, electric toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin. You've got lotions, moisturizer, cleanser, makeup, peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer, freezing in both surgeries. So anyways, I might keep this up on the chair if you want to take a look at this Excel sheet later of what's spent on head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. You're welcome to do so. And speaking, you probably saw I do have an anatomical chart there, and you can lift off the sheets, and it will expose more and more of the body. I'll also be putting up, I had a colonoscopy a year ago, and if you want to see what it, the inside of a large 
Bob intestine looks like. You're welcome to do that with four polyps. And um, also I had a, a knee surgery two years ago, and if you want to see my uh, right knee joint, you're welcome to. I'll bring, I have some photographs of that, and I'll put it up there as well for show and tell. It's very powerful. I remember in both the colonoscopy and in the knee surgery, I requested to be awake. And they actually had a video camera so I could actually watch the doctor do this. And it was like, <laughs> some people going, like, what? <laughs> I was fascinated. I said, can you show me my liver and my heart now? And he said, no, no, we're just staying to the knee. But it was, um, but it was just like fantastic voyage, you know, like, wow, this is the body. I mean, it's like, you know, you hear about a knee, but, you know, when do you get to see one? Or you hear about a large intestine, or, but you get to see it from the inside. It's amazing. Another question I think is very valid to ask is why these 32 parts? I mean, there's no mention of the eye, the nose, the genitals, the pancreas. I mean, there's so many, so many parts of the body that are omitted. And I could not find also in any of the canonical literature about why that is the case. But my own experience now having taught this for five years is that I, I consider these parts to be, for lack of a better word, ambassadors. And they are an ambassador and an entrance way into the body. My wife, for example, has uh, she's an insulin-dependent diabetic, and so the pancreas is something that's really up for her. So when we were in the digestive area, it was very natural what became evoked as she sat with the large intestine, small intestine, stomach, and so forth, uh, that the pancreas came up for her big time. And so it was a natural inclination of that evoking, of that experience, and that is to be part of the practice as well. So I want to say that as we go through this practice, if other parts of the systems, of the aspects of the body arise, may you include them, that these parts that we're working with, I, I really do consider them to be ambassadors that are bringing us into the body. And so the body is our field and will be present with what's here. There's a Zen poet in Santa Cruz, and when she was exposed to the 32 parts of the body, she decided, well, I'm going to create my own list and she calls it the 110 functions of the body. So I'd like to introduce it to you. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing. Hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing. Salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting. Transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing. Burning, building, copying, creating, destroying cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, 
upholding, anchoring, propriocepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, sucking, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Whew. Quite a list. Martha Elliott, she writes, your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse of learnings, feelings, thoughts, and experiences, only waiting to be invited to reveal your treasures to yourself, so help yourself. And as you let the learning emerge and take shape, you can appreciate the wisdom of the body, each cell alive with spirit, emotion, and intelligence ready to help you at any moment, always with you and for you. Your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse. So tomorrow, well actually, we've started already diving into the body with the breath and the postures and Tomorrow we'll be going into these parts and becoming mindful of what it evokes physically within us, mentally and emotionally, and acknowledging what's present. We'll also be incorporating a little bit of loving kindness at the end of each of these body part meditations so that there is a way to help to acknowledge and honor this body. Every one of these parts is interrelated to so many others, and this is the vehicle, the body that we live in. Since we live in this body, and from that last poem, our history is here inside our body, and so what becomes evoked within us is to be met with awareness and to be acknowledged. This is why I consider the 32 parts of the body to be a very important and meaningful meditation. It is connecting us with the vehicle that we live inside of every day. From the moment of our parents' conception until our death, we live within this body. So we'll be diving into the body. And Jack Cornfield's teacher, who is Achan Cha, and Achan Cha's teacher was a Thai forest master, Achan Mun. Achan Mun, he says, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and free. So it's this bringing of awareness. My teacher Tampulo Cedo said that midnight is dark, a new moon is dark, 
The thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. Perhaps that's why this beautiful uh, Spanish poet Antonio Machado, he said that some say it's good to dream, others say it's better to live, but best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. So this is what we're working on here, to awaken. As we awaken, we can become that much more real and human. I loved what Mary Grace said last night about take it personally. And I think it was a very personal thing when Siddhartha Gautama realized that he could not escape from aging, illness, and death. It was an emotional reaction. What? I'm going to die and everyone else's? This was a real personal, emotional reaction to the reality of life. And it was this that catapulted him to want to wake up. And this waking up is helping us to become very real. So I'd like to maybe just end with a couple of uh, short little readings that I love that express the realness and also the humanness because we're all in this together. So I really want to get across here in this retreat, may we cultivate our sense of insight and mindfulness and also the deep sense of compassion, of holding ourselves with, with some sense of kindness and I mean, if my mind is similar to yours, I just know how unkind one can be towards oneself. I know that from my own experience. So from the Velveteen Rabbit, what's real, asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time and not just plays with you, but really loves you, that's how you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, it does, sometimes, said the skin horse. He also said, when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints, and you look very, very shabby. I feel very comforted with that line, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't, can't be unreal again. It lasts for always. You know, that part about being shabby, I had this one shirt that my wife said, she would joke around with me saying, you can't go out of the house with this shirt on. It was ragged, falling apart, holes worn. I loved it. But I decided on my anniversary, I bought about 15 little gifts, and I cut up my shirt into little... Uh, <laughs> little wrapping paper and I wrapped up my shirt with all these gifts and gave it to her she, she liked it 
But it was, my shirt was very shabby, and somehow the shabbier it got, the more comfortable it was. But I'm happy to report that I have another new shirt that's moving into the real shabby department. And I was just sharing with her the other day, and probably within a year she'll say, I can't go out of the house again. Feeling shabby is all right. Well, I'm going to end with this <clears throat> one poem from David Butfield, called Like Any Other Day. It says, Hun... Han Shan, that great and crazy Chinese poet a thousand years ago, said we're all like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the bowl, sliding back down over and over again. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, in your hands, cry, moan. You can feel sorry for yourself or you can look around. You can see your fellow bugs. You can walk around and say, Hey, how you doing? Hey, nice bull. Take a look around. Hey, nice bull. The bull of the meditation hall. So let's just sit for another minute and come to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.